invite you to join with me in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom it contains. Would you help us to understand it this morning and to be satisfied in you? And I pray, Lord, as the preacher, that you would help me be clear and faithful and true. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you guys remember back in the middle of the summer, uh, around July, uh, the, the lottery got high enough in the prize, the pot was so big that the news started carrying articles about it. Um, and uh, on July 14th, News for Jacks had a little article on their online thing um, because the, the Mega Millions jackpot got to $560 million and the Powerball was at $875 million. And they had this article and the, the, here's the headline, rip up the winning ticket, question mark, five reasons why winning lottery can destroy lives. And they give five reasons, and here are the five reasons. One, everyone, and I mean everyone, will ask you for money. So there'll be constant distress because of that. Two, you become a target. It's frightening how many people have been murdered who win the lottery. I started looking up, I, I couldn't believe that, like as if, Somehow they're going to get the money. But yeah, the, the, all kinds of crime follows you. You become a target. Three, you have strained and often lost relationships. They gave one illustration of a, a woman who appealed to a winner to help her because she was so far behind on her mortgage, she was going to have her house repossessed. Foolishly, um, the tax records are available. And he looked it up and saw that she was not at all like that and sent a screenshot and never heard from her again. Friendship ended. And then... They call something the sudden wealth syndrome, where either uh, boredom or guilt sets in. You feel guilty because so many people are needy and suffering in the world, and, and against all odds, you're now suddenly rich. Or all the things you were working for are suddenly fulfilled, and you get bored. You don't know what to do with yourself. These are real problems. And then the fifth one is that the lottery often changes you, and not necessarily for good. In fact, People declare becoming unhappy. There's an increase in the number of divorces and even suicide. And 70% of people that win the big lottery go bankrupt within several years. That's crazy, right? Now you're thinking, not me, give me a shot at it. I can do better than all the rest of those fools. But you know, there's some wisdom to, to, to question the fact that most don't end well when they suddenly come into that kind of wealth. It's, it's a question of what happens when you get everything you think you want and find it's not everything you think you want. You know, there was, uh, as I read that, it reminded me of an interview I saw with Tom Brady when he was 27 years old, you know, the, the greatest of all time, as he's been called, the quarterback for New England and then down here in Tampa. And this was uh, November 4, 2005. He's 27 years old. He said, quote, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me. And then he said, God, it's got to be more than this, which is literally the tagline for the Alpha program. There has to be more to life than this. Tom Brady said that. He's, we call him the G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time, but he's not satisfied. I'd be curious to hear now that he's got seven of those rings if seven was much better than three, right? I think we can probably guess what the answer would be. So this morning, I'm asking the question of myself and you, what do you think would satisfy you? Notice that that's, that's a loaded question, right? It implies you're not satisfied. You might be sitting there thinking, 
I'm actually quite content with everything the Lord has given me. I'm totally at peace right now. I'm not striving for something. I'm, I'm right where I need to be, and I'm happy with it. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if that's you, because everyone will be looking at you, because most of us cannot say that. Most of us are not in that place. So um, this gospel reading this morning, we've got a, a rich young man coming to Jesus asking for even more. We learn that he has great possessions, but the simple fact that he's come to the teacher, the rabbi, the miracle worker, and said, what good thing do I have to add to this if I want eternal life? In other words, it seems like he's got wealth, he's got youth, he's got the world in his hand, and now he's realizing, I can't hang on to this stuff. How do I, how do I stay set up like I am now for eternity? Even he was not satisfied. There was more that he needed. Now, last week, we started into Ecclesiastes, and the teacher, Kohelet in Hebrew, is the seminar leader. He's the wisdom preacher. He's the person who's pointing at different observations about secular living so that we can glean wisdom without having to fall down into the pit that other people fall into. We can learn some things from what he does. And last week, he said, your life and my life is like a mist or a breath. It's, it's fleeting, it's very temporary, and you can't hold on to it. So it goes by quickly, and you can't hang on to it. And then we said that the universe does not reward individual striving apart from God. The, the universe is just set up in such a way that if you try to find self-fulfillment apart from God, you can't. And you'll either despair, or it will drive you to him, which is actually in your best interest. The teacher made observations last week, and now this week, Chapter 2, he's going to use his wisdom to actually test his theory. He's going to do things that secular thinking says will satisfy. And so that's where we pick up today. Um, uh, We're on page 553 in a pew Bible, if you want to look at actually what is in the Word of God. The ESV headings, which are not part of the inspired scripture, they're, they're helps that the translators and scholars put on here to help us see where we are in the, in the text. They put some headings on this. One is called the vanity of self-indulgence. Then the next, which is, that's the paragraph that we had read. Then the next paragraph says the vanity of living wisely. And then the last one says the vanity of toil, referring to your work, your labor. So self-indulgence, living wisely, and work. Chapter two is looking at all three of those things. And Kohelet, this preacher guy, is going to do these things and make observations about what happens. So he starts in today, and in verse uh, 1, he says, I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And right away he says, but behold, this too is vanity. He knows where it's going to go. He's confident in his theory from chapter 1 that it cannot satisfy. But he's going to do it anyway. And so he goes in, and he says, I said, of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. And then there's a little dash, and it says, it says that he was still, he says, my heart was guiding me still with wisdom. In other words, I'm not just going to go drink alcohol until I'm stupid and escape from everything and pretend nothing's going on. I'm going to apply wisdom and see if all those other drunkards have some secret or have found some satisfaction I'm missing. He was using wisdom. It was not an excuse or an escape. And I'm sure after the the hangover wore off, he went, yep, my theory was right. That's not a good thing. There's no satisfaction there. But he doesn't stop just with wine. He goes on and he does works. It says in verse 4, I made great works. 
I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. It looks like he's trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. But remember, there was something we didn't read last week, a proverb he wrote in chapter one where he said, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, the curse that fell upon the created order in Genesis chapter three can only be removed by the one who put the curse on it. So when you see that stupid weed that can grow in the crack in your driveway and you can't kill with the worst chemicals, but your tomato plants get eaten up by aphids and they rot on the vine, remember the entire planet is under a curse and we can't lift it. Paul says in Romans 8 that it is subject to futility. The entire created order has been subjected to futility by him who subjected it. And Christ is going to return and fix that. He's going to re restore. He's going to make all things new. The day will come when what's supposed to grow will grow. But it's interesting to note that God did give us work to do. In Genesis 1 and 2, it says he made this garden and he placed Adam and Eve in it to work it, to manage it, to, to enjoy it, and to be fed from it. So that was before sin entered in. There is a good kind of work that's not a striving, that is a God-given gift. And, you know, it's interesting. Ecclesiastes isn't all negative. You know, he does all this stuff. He has slaves to work his stuff. He's got possessions of flocks and herds. He's got treasure, silver, gold. He has singers, male and female singers. He's got art. He, of course, sex is in there too. And, and then he says uh, in verse, what is it, verse 10, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. You see, we wouldn't run after these things if there wasn't some, some reward. I mean, the, the new car smell is enjoyable for about a year, right, before it wears off. And sometimes when your garden produces like it's supposed to, it's incredibly satisfying temporarily. There is goodness in the order, and God gives us work to do. It's, it's part of his design for us. And that was before the fall. But now the ground is cursed, and it's by the sweat of your brow that you'll, you'll work and you'll get your food, it says in Genesis 3. And so there's a striving and a struggle and pain. And what people want to do is they want to fix it in their own strength. I'm going to build gardens. I'm going to make great buildings. I'm going to put up trees and plant it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make my own perfect little utopia. But we can't. That's, that's beyond what we can do, and it never satisfies. And he comes down saying this too was striving. And he says, then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He comes away frustrated. The next section he says, well, maybe I'll stop trying wisdom. I'll try folly you know, ignorance is bliss, we say. Instead of being so wise, I'll just be a fool. But then he says, the wise do live in light, and fools walk in darkness. So it is better to be wise than a fool, but at the end of the day, both go to the same place. Both go back, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so he says, at the end of the day, it doesn't seem to matter. And then finally, he, in the, the third paragraph, he, he looks at his work, his physical work, the toil. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. 
And who knows? Maybe he'll be a fool. Maybe he'll be a wise man. But I've got to give it away. I can't take it with me. Much like the young man who comes to Jesus, I want to keep my riches and all my goodness, and I want it to go on for eternity. What good deed do I have to do to get that? Sorry. Jesus goes the opposite way. Much like we saw last week, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. So he says to that man, sell, if you want to be perfect, sell all that you possess, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Then you'll have treasures in heaven, which is mind-blowing for this guy. It's like you're going in one direction, and you've got to turn around and go the complete opposite direction. And Jesus exposes something about his heart. Now, verse 24 and verse 26 of this chapter do give us some, some goodness. It's not all despair. It's not all vanity. He does note, there is nothing better for a person, this is verse 24, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. And then in 26 it says, for to one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. Remember the parable Jesus told of the talents and the people that were faithful with the talents entrusted to them were praised for it and then were given more. And the one who did not handle it well, he took it away and he gave it to one who was faithful. And he says that's the principle. If you're faithful with a little, you're entrusted with more. But if you're not faithful, even what you have will be taken away. And so here in Ecclesiastes, we see the same idea, that God gives these things. Now, we have to jump ahead, as we've been doing. We're going to jump ahead because we have, a, we have a vantage point that's not just under the sun. We have the New Testament. We know how the story ends. We've seen what happens when God himself enters into this broken world and goes to the cross for us. And Jesus gave some teachings about satisfaction, about work, about pleasure, about stuff. He was asked how to pray one time, and his answer was, pray, give us this day our daily bread. In other words, we might want God to give us a storehouse full of five years' worth of stuff, and when that's done, we'll go back and get more from him, but he wants to feed us daily from the palm of his hand. He wants dependence. He wants to care for us moment by moment and wants us to receive those things with gratitude. So Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink, about what clothing you'll wear. God knows you need these things. He's not ignorant. This is not naivety. He knows that we're going to need these things. But he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven, and then these things will be added to you as well. In fact, when he sent out his disciples on their mission as pairs to go to the towns, he said, don't take all the extra supplies. Go and proclaim the kingdom, cast out demons, heal the sick, tell them the kingdom of God has come near, and eat whatever they serve you, for the worker deserves his wages. He was teaching his disciples to trust God to provide along the way. Instead of working against everything that's in this universe to provide for themselves, they're going to work with it. They're going to listen to God, and they're going to let God provide for them. That was what Jesus wanted to teach. And the scriptures tell us that He's the, he's the king of the kings, and you, if you're a Christian, are a co-heir with Christ. The king of the universe owns all things. I think it's Psalm 50 that says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, meaning all the cows are his, or maybe in modern terms, all the cars are his, whatever the thing is. It's all his. It's his property, and if you belong to him, you're a co-heir with him. However, 
from a heavenly perspective, we don't quite even understand the riches that we already have a claim to because of what Christ has given. And so we see things like um, the Apostle Peter in uh, 1 Peter 1.4, he, um, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. An inheritance, unfading, imperishable. Paul will say the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1. And Jesus is saying, treasures in heaven, you know, there's so much coming. You don't have to strive to, to get it now in this life. I think C.S. Lewis was onto something when he made the observation about desire and the corresponding satisfaction. He, he says, if there is a desire that exists, there typically is something to satisfy. And he gives examples. One is a baby. A newborn baby desires milk, and there is a thing such as milk. And when the baby gets the milk, at least temporarily, the baby is satisfied. But if we find a desire in our heart that nothing in this world can satisfy, it's likely that that's because our hearts are not for this world. It's not likely that there isn't something that will satisfy. His observation was that there are corresponding desires and satisfaction. And the point is, God is where our satisfaction is. That's where we will be satisfied. So what's our application? We look at what Kohelet did and all the pleasure, self-indulgent. Note that he only cared for himself. You know, Jesus did tell the young rich man, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is entirely alone. He said, I'm going to serve my own desires with all these things and see what happens. He's looking at himself instead of giving his life away. There's no community in this. Can we look at what he's got going on here and learn something from his experiment? I think of the Apostle Paul in Philippians, in prison, writes four chapters that has the word joy or rejoice in it so many times. He comes to the conclusion that he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, with apologies to certain football players, to put that on your face, it's not about winning a playoff. The context here is actually about satisfaction without having enough stuff. So Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's actually the context of that, that famous verse. Paul has learned. Note, there's a process. I have learned how to be content. And inferring, he didn't always have contentment. He learned it. Well, one of the great ways to learn contentment is to practice thankfulness. What are you thankful for that you already have, not something you have to strive for to get that you already have? We have so many things we're constantly taking for granted. I, I went um, to my dentist, um, who's actually in here, um, last week to get a cleaning, and there was a little pain in the upper thing, and he fixed it, it went away, it's great, thank you, thanks doc. Um, <laughs> but the funny thing about it is, if there wasn't pain, I did not appreciate any of my teeth. It wasn't until something wasn't working right that I had to get it fixed. What are you, what's working right in your life that you're not expressing gratitude for? 
We tend to be caught up with what's not working well and what's not being satisfied and miss all the blessings of what God is doing. And so be thankful. I mean, before this service is up, tell God in your, in your heart, in your mind quietly, 10 things that are good that you have that he's given you that you're thankful for. You start doing that and you will begin to cultivate a contentment. Now, I noted that the universe is arranged in such a way that it does not reward selfish, striving, self-indulgence. And if we work with what is in place, we start to find that God provides what we need along the way. He teaches us to trust him so he can feed us from his hands daily, moment by moment. I have to confess, I'm once again addicted to a series of the show Alone, which is the like, real survivor show where they drop 10 people in British Columbia on Vancouver Island, and they have 10 items with them and camera gear and no other people. They're totally alone, and they've got to figure out how to live. And there's, I don't know, 10 seasons of this and counting. And, oh, and the last one standing gets a half a million dollars, for real. And so there's incentive to figure this out. And, and they keep dropping out for different reasons. But there are two guys. I'm going I'm to ruin season two, but we're, you're on season 10, so you've had a chance to get it. There are two guys in there, Randy and Mike, who are totally killing it. I mean, they're like, their camp is awesome. This one guy, he's, he's carved, he, he made himself a football game. He carved a pair of dice, and he has rocks and shells. And when he rolls the dice, the play works itself out. So he's like got NFL football happening on his table that he made. He has a, a foot-controlled water station and a bucket tilts, and he can wash his hands with a foot. Like, and he's eating, and he's safe, and he's warm. And he punches the, the I quit button because he realizes it's just all selfish. I miss my wife. What am I doing out here? A half a million dollars is not worth wasting the next month or two of my life waiting out other people. I'm out. Both of them were doing incredible, they were doing incredibly well in terms of the survival thing, but they, they, got, they got quiet enough to realize what really matters in my life. And they realized it's the community, it's serving others, it's not just serving themselves. Such great wisdom in there. So I wanna encourage you, be thankful, Work on contentment and do it in community, loving others. That's, that's what Jesus teaches. Let's pray. Lord, we need to pray a prayer of forgiveness for the striving, at least I do, of trying to find satisfaction in this temporary life. But Lord, you provide for us. You're a good father who gives good gifts to his children. Would you teach us to trust you, to be thankful, to stop striving and experience the peace that you have? And Jesus, I thank you for your work and all that was completed and what it means for the future for us. Give us that hope and that joy. I ask it in your holy name.